Now, after having been here for ten days, you're going to face the world again. And our first few days, we'll probably find your reaction changed. But then you get used to it again. And everything is as it was before. That's the moment when one should pay attention. At first, when you come back into the ordinary, everyday life, you will take with you, whether you want to or not, some of the changed perception that is inevitably a result of hearing the Dhamma, of being quiet, of going inside, and of concentrating, however much of each one can manage. But that changed perception is battered by the reactions and by the world's input and after very few days within the first week it's all back to what people call normal it isn't it's, it's absurd but because the input is so enormous and everybody seems to believe that that's the way it is it's very difficult to remain centered within. There are certain things that you can do to help yourself to remain centered and not fall into the ways of the world, which is stressful, which is quite often um, aggressive, competitive, threatening, worrisome, and many other ways and means of creating a great deal of unhappiness. Now what you can do, the first thing which is at the top of the list, and without it nobody has a chance, is mindfulness paying attention to oneself, being an objective observer of oneself, not falling into that which arises but observing it. In other words, if distress, anxiety, fear, dislike, rejection, anger, irritation, worry, whatever it is, arises, not to be it but to observe it. Well, that sounds simple, doesn't it? It's mighty difficult. If you keep on doing it, you will find that life changes. If you don't do it, everything remains the same as always. Because all those things will arise, every bit of it. 
And every time we become the fear, we become the worry, we become the dislike, we become the distress, whatever it is that has arisen, we've lost that round. The only shelter the mind has, the only refuge, the only thing where it can actually find any kind of safety from becoming those negative states is mindfulness. But one has to be extremely honest to oneself about oneself. This honesty does not pay off. Everybody knows that. But we think it concerns stealing and lying. Well, I don't know that any of us steal or lie to the greatest to great extent. But we are quite capable of being completely dishonest, honest to ourselves about ourselves. In fact, we're quite capable of knowing nothing about ourselves. Mindfulness is the only thing that will alleviate that. And it's the only shelter the mind can have. The only way that we can be objective. And when we are objectively observing, obviously we don't become the fear or the anger or the worry or the boredom or whatever it is that has arisen. Because we can't do these two things at the same time. We are then the observer. And the observer becomes more and more imbued with that observation and therefore has the understood experience. Only that will help. It's the first order of the day and it's got nothing to do with being in a meditation course. It has not even anything to do where we are and what we're doing. It doesn't matter whether we have noble friends or not. Mindfulness is the po- is possible for anyone at any time but forgetting is just as easy and dishonesty about ourselves is very simple because it sort of puts a curtain in front of the whole mess and then we don't have to know And as we have that in front of us and don't know about ourselves, we can actually live in a fool's paradise as long as we don't have any great tragedies. They, of course, take us out of that. And then we think it's because of the outer happenings. But if we do observe what's going on within, we know that it's not outside of us. The mindfulness of the physical, the action and the movement, mindfulness of the emotion, mindfulness of the mental state, mindfulness of the mental content. Those are the four foundations of mindfulness. Without it, a spiritual path is impossible. Everything remains as it was. But those four foundations are to be used whenever, whichever one is appropriate. It's useless 
to observe one's emotions when we are crossing a busy street. It'd be much more uh, appropriate to be mindful of the physical that is happening at that time. And so we know by with only without even thinking about it what happens is that which we need to pay attention to but what we usually pay attention to is what we would like it to be and how we would prefer it to be and how we don't like what's there and that's our our dissatisfaction, our striving to get, the restlessness we're hoping to become. In, instead of watching the way it is, we watch the way we would prefer it. In other words, we try to make things the way we think they ought to be. It seems an, an awful assumption, doesn't it, that we really know how it ought to be. But because everybody thinks they do know how it ought to be, we have all these different views and different um, ideas. And if somebody should have the same idea and view we have, we form a club. And then we have at least a few that are supporting that. And the number of clubs, organizations, and the rest of it is uh, uncountable. There's no way we can ever count them. So instead of doing all that, be much better to become aware of the way things really are within ourselves. And as we become aware of that, we can see that we're constantly reacting. And as we see that, we might learn to drop that reaction. And instead of reacting, just knowing. Now with mindfulness, there is another facet of our mental formation. I've briefly mentioned it, I will explain it now. Because it is very important. It's called clear comprehension goes together with mindfulness in Pali, Sati, Sampanyanya. The two are usually mentioned together by the Buddha, not always, but very often. And clear comprehension means that we're actually investigating why we're doing what we're doing. It has four steps. The first step is that before we say or do anything at all. We find out the purpose. Why do we want to say something? Why do we want to do something? In fact, we can go one step back and investigate why do we want to think it? What's the purpose of it all? Now, the answer to that may be quite varied. The purpose sometimes may be distraction. The purpose sometimes may be assertion, ego assertion. Other times we may actually find that 
we are looking to be helpful. Other times we might be quite clear in our mind that the purpose is sense gratification. Well, whatever it is, if we find that the purpose is useful, we can go on to the next three. But if we find already at the beginning that the purpose is nothing but another worldly, material, corporal, physical thing, we might be able to abstain. If we get it quite clear in the mind what our purpose of thought, speech or action is, we have a much better chance of using a pathway to growth. It's very important to know that we either grow or decline. We never stand still. So this is one thing that one should keep in mind. Now having ascertained that the purpose is something useful, the next question is, are the means which I have in mind skillful? If I want to say something, or do something, or even think something, am I using the most skillful means? If it's thinking, am I really one-pointed and observing, or uh, is the mind scattered all over the place and can't come together? If I have already ascertained that the purpose of whatever it is is something useful, the means have to be and uh, investigated. The um, no end justifies the means. There's no such thing. The means have to be skillful within the uh, spiritual understanding just as the purpose has to be something that is good and pure. So if we actually think that the means which we have in mind on which we are trying to use are skillful, then the next observation is, is all that within the Dhamma? Now you could, for instance, imagine that there is um, a bank robber and he would like to break the safe in the bank and he uses this Um, criteria. What's my purpose? Is the purpose good? Yes, of course it's good. The bank has so much money, I need it, so it's all right for me to go there. Now, am I using the most skillful means? Well, he may have ascertained that he has found where the alarms are and he can have been able to bypass them. He has great mindfulness of being able to crack the safe without anybody noticing it. So he's got skillful means. But if he has ever heard of the Dhamma, the third criteria will not uh, uh, be useful to him because the third criteria will be the question whether that what we are intending to do and the means which we are going to use, are they within the Dhamma? And obviously, if he's heard about the Dhamma, he will have to admit that he's breaking the second precept. Now, obviously, he wouldn't have heard of the Dhamma, otherwise he wouldn't have had such intentions. But we may have 
intentions which we think are quite all right but if we check them against the precepts and check them against wholesome and unwholesome and check them against beneficial and not beneficial against pure and impure whichever we prefer or all of them we will find quite clearly those that are within the Dhamma and those that are not naturally this is going to slow us down but nothing could be better impulsive and instinctive reactions and impulsive and instinctive speech and action are very often regretted a moment later or a year later or ten years later and regret and remorse are negativities in the mind that we can do well without so slowing ourselves down by making these investigations is the best thing we could possibly do naturally it doesn't take as long as it takes me to explain it but it does certainly prevent us from being impulsive it also prevents us from being totally egocentric because if we investigate their purpose this means and their, the Dhamma content we will sometimes not always notice that what it, whatever it is that we're trying to do is directed toward having more becoming more gaining something and we may remember it's just possible that we might remember that the whole of the spiritual part is directed towards letting go and not getting more you see the getting more is an impossibility because there is in the world uncountable innumerable more it's never an end there's no end to it we can always get something else and become something else and have a better sense contact but letting go there's an end to that because the end of letting go means letting go of the self-illusion and then you're finished the whole thing has been done so if we use those three criteria we have a guideline for our everyday thought, speech and action and those are the three doors we have we have nothing else it's either thought, speech or action and thought is of course the instigator it's the one that starts it all and having come that far we have another point the fourth one and the fourth one has several implications on the level of everyday life we can investigate whether having done or said whatever it was we had in mind we have actually achieved the purpose that we had intended and if not why not what went wrong 
And this is a very important investigation because it will help us to change whatever is necessary so that we do not fall into the same error again. If our purpose was quite clearly a good one and it has not been accomplished, somewhere along the line something went wrong. The means were not skillful or it wasn't with impurity. The direction of purity invariably works because there's nobody there that wants anything. But the direction of wanting which is connected with dukkha and impurity has a lot of pitfalls. So we need to investigate have we actually achieved the purpose. If so, fine. If not, why not? This is a personal um, investigation and a, a personal observation without which life is either shallow and superficial or full of difficulties. Since everybody runs around with an ego, if our ego is too strong, we're going to bump into other egos all the time. So there's one difficulty. And the other difficulty lies in the fact that we cannot get better and better sense contact. It's just not possible. There's a limit to them. So with all that, all that difficulty, we have a pathway to checking it out and to seeing where we could let go a little more. The less we carry around with us, the lighter the burden, the easier the passage. A passage from birth to death isn't an easy one. The less we carry with us, the easier it is to travel. There's another aspect to the fourth one, to this fourth investigation, the one whether we have achieved our purpose. And that aspect is that we take with us into daily life our meditative understanding and our meditative ability. Now that doesn't mean that we constantly go around meditating on the breath. It's not possible. We have to attend to ordinary business. But if we have gained any kind of peacefulness during our meditation, if we have actually seen what it means to be without thinking, we do not let that go completely, but keep it in mind as a background backdrop to our daily activities so that the mind does not fully remove itself from that. So that actually when it's time to meditate again, we can get back to it quite easily. Now the more we have business during the day, the harder this is. The less we have to do during the day, the easier this is. Obviously some people have obligations of one sort or another and that cannot be changed. 
However, that kind of backdrop remembrance can be taken along because the mind can refer to it at any moment. People who are very busy in their daily lives always think that they are busy all the time, but that's not true. Nobody can remain busy eight or nine or ten hours in a row. It's just not possible. The mind can't handle it. What happens is that we do something. Then comes a pause. And during that pause, the mind is stressed and strained, trying to think of all the things it's going to do. And obviously, at the end of the day, it's had it. Those pauses between doing one thing and starting the next, whether it's mental or physical, those pauses should be used to go back inside and come back to the meditation ability we have had in the course, even if it is only one moment. And by then doing that, first of all, we don't forget what it is like to be in a meditative frame of mind, and secondly, the mind doesn't get stressed with all its future activities. While it is sitting there thinking, 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 it isn't doing it anyway. So the pauses in one's daily activity should be used to return to a state of peacefulness which may have occurred in the meditation. If that hasn't occurred, just watch the breath for a moment just become aware of breathing. We're breathing all day long, so we might as well become aware of it in those pauses. One second of that is one second of purification. And that is a very important thing if we have a very busy life. If we don't have such a busy life, it's equally useful, but easier to accomplish. which that is called taking the meditation subject into one's life, which is the fourth of those clear comprehensions. And we cannot, of course, take it with us into daily life completely, like sitting for half an hour at our desk if we're working in an office and saying, well, just a minute, I'm busy now with this. That is not possible. But one moment, two moments, five moments, is possible for anyone. And it is the insurance against having the mind either completely stressed or cut off and shut off from our inner life. Mindfulness and clear comprehension are our two allies in daily life. Without them, it remains the usual turmoil and uh, chaos that most daily lives are, and one find, has to find some sort of protection. Our greatest protection is loving kindness and compassion. And as I've said already, every encounter with another human being is a challenge and an invitation a learning situation, our working ground. 
Now, obviously, we're not always going to rise up to the challenge. That's fine. That's why it is a learning situation. When we used to be in school or at university, we didn't know all the answers all the time. That's what we were there for, to learn them. This is life can be called an adult education class. And if we use it as such, it's useful. If we use it as a playground for our emotions or as a fairground for our senses, it's useful. It doesn't work. But as an adult education class, yes, that works. And actually, whether we want that or not, that's exactly what happens to everybody. The only trouble is that some people don't want to be educated. They'd rather play hooky. They don't want to know about it. So they move away. They move themselves from one place to the next, where there could apparently be a little less education, because there's a little less dukkha there. But it doesn't work. We always come back to the same stuff again. So we might as well give in and say, all right, it's an adult education class. And that's what we're here for. And we're never too young nor too old to get started. This particular school doesn't have any entry exams. We've already passed that one by being born. Here we are. Now we can do it. It's happening to everyone all the time. So we might as well try and see which lesson is at this moment being offered to us particularly. It is always there, but we don't always recognize it. And when we don't recognize it, of course, we don't learn from it. But as we recognize it, it becomes very interesting because we get the same lesson over and over again until we finally pass that particular problem and then we get the next one. So it is a very interesting and very um, uh, full inner life that happens once we realize that all we are here for is to go through this adult education system and finally one day maybe not in this life, maybe the next one, whatever happens, pass the last exam and be completely free. While we're still doing it, while we're still being examined and have our daily lessons, the more we use them, the easier everything becomes. The biggest mistake we make is blaming another blaming fate, blaming whatever outside of us, hoping for something from outside of us. These are all the mistakes because in this adult education class we can't even copy somebody else's lessons. We've got to do all our own thing. When we were in the school and uh, maybe at college, we could actually, if we had a friend who knew more than we did, we could copy his writing and his arithmetic, but here we can't do it. We've got to do it ourselves. 
this is one of the of the important ways of looking upon our life. It isn't particularly awful or difficult or uh, restrained or restricted. All it is is showing us exactly what we need to learn. And as we look at it, we get a quite a clear view which are the subjects that we are worst at. The ones we are good at anyway, well, they're a cinch, aren't they? But the ones we are worst at, that's the ones we are finding out over and over again. <coughs> Very interesting, actually. But we have to be an objective observer of ourselves and not this creature that's always either cringing because something is happening or asserting because it has a chance to. Neither way, an observer, an objective observer, watching it all. And then we have understood experiences from which wisdom arises. And there's no blame attached to not passing any of these lessons for falling uh, into the error of uh, not being able to handle it. It's quite all right as long as we're aware of it. When we're not aware of it, of course, then we've missed the point completely. Then we're getting the same thing immediately again. Mindfulness and clear comprehension are our helpmates, and if we don't use them, we are shortchanging ourselves. We all have them. The more we practice them, the better we're at it. If we don't forget, we can become quite good at it. It becomes a habit. Now, in addition to that, of course, it's necessary to continue one's meditation. It's probably not even necessary to mention that. But the difficulty which most people encounter in that continuation is the fact that they think everything else is more important. The, the excuse is always, I haven't got the time. Well, the only thing to do is to make the time. Everybody's got 24 hours in a day. Out of those 24 hours, one might sleep seven, let's say. That leaves us with 17 hours. Out of those 17 hours, we might have to go to work, eight. So, how many hours does that leave? That leaves nine hours. What are we going to do with those nine hours? Got to do something sensible with them. We can't go nine hours shopping or nine hours eating or nine, nine hours uh, uh, resting or nine hours reading or nine hours. We've got to do something sensible. So I think the most important thing might be to make oneself a plan. What's important in my life and how am I going to use it? If one has a plan, that means one has a, an image of how to arrange one's life. And that image of how to arrange one's life is like a, a building plan. 
when an architect is asked to make a plan for a house he has an image of what the house is supposed to look like so he draws it on a piece of paper well isn't it more important to have an image of what my life's supposed to be like instead of taking pot luck sometimes it works and other times it doesn't if everybody is nice to me I'm fine if nobody is nice to me I'm, I don't feel good I mean that doesn't really work does it so a building plan for one's life what do I want to do with it how do I want to arrange it put it on paper write it down what's important to me how can I do it these things are important how can I make them happen what would I like to have the results of my daily activity how should that look so having made a plan obviously meditation will have to enter into it it's um, a good idea to plan to meditate an hour in the morning an hour at night however if one thinks oh that's very difficult it's better to start with 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes at night and add to it five minutes every month until one gets to an hour instead of the other way around starting with an hour and taking five minutes off every month until <laughs> one winds up with nothing which is the usual procedure actually in the Dhamma we have to turn everything upside down just do it differently just do it the other way around and it works much better so if you think you can handle an hour in the morning and an hour at night don't make a resolution I'm going to do this for the rest of my life it's too long it doesn't work make a resolution I'm going to meditate tomorrow morning and then make a resolution I'm going to meditate tonight and then again tomorrow morning that is possible everything else is wishful thinking we are so used to wishful thinking we have to examine it now if you do make that kind of resolution that's better so if you want to have a middle way start with 45 minutes work up to an hour have a place in your house where you meditate have it ready a corner with a cushion a corner where you might have a, a Buddha statue or a beautiful picture or a plain white wall or a vase with flowers whatever you like but leave the cushion there we don't take the uh, pots out of the kitchen we don't take the towels out of the bathroom we've got our things where we need them so if you do get up earlier in the morning you don't have to run through the house and try to find the cushion I can't remember where it was and finally give up and say I'll do it tomorrow but you know exactly where to go this is the corner for the meditation and this is where my cushion is so you sit down the mind is habit prone give it a good habit
get yourself a little timer that rings at the appointed time whatever you have decided it rings and whatever you have decided you sit until it rings if you don't have that you might sit there meditating, meditating, meditating and then you think oh, must be an hour and a half I've been here a long time I better get up and you get up and you go in the kitchen and it's ten minutes and after after you've having come to the kitchen of course you don't go back because now it's time to have tea and breakfast so the timer doesn't ring after ten minutes it rings after the time that you have decided and so you know you sit and as you remember or may remember I said that the intention makes good karma whether you concentrate or not every moment of concentration is a moment of purification so you sit you have your timer as your friend there that watches out that you don't just get up and go if you have somebody you can meditate with that's very good because the group energy helps and if you don't want to get up in the morning maybe the other person says well come on let's meditate it's very helpful most people are not in that lucky position so you have to tell yourself come on get up it's very important to have a group that one can visit once a week or something like that even twice a week but at least once a week because one is then together with like-minded people and one can find noble friends who have the same intention as oneself if the group that you can join because it's near you meditates with a different tradition or with a different uh, meditation subject it doesn't matter all methods are methods they eventually lead the concentrated mind to the meditative absorptions and nowhere else and the meditative absorptions eventually lead the concentrated mind to the ability and the possibility of letting go of this bothersome me so whatever people do unless they try to convert you that is of course a danger because then you start maybe arguing but if you just sit you can sit with anyone it doesn't matter whatever they do you do your thing whatever it is if you have found a good way of meditating you continue with it so if you find a group that you can join once a week do that if you can't start a group two are a group invite any one of your friends who have already meditated or who you think would like to meditate and tell them to watch the breath it's as simple as that and if you would like to meditate and then ask you a question or maybe you are already three steps ahead of this friend and you can be a noble friend and explain what you've been doing 
labeling their distracting thoughts, watching the breathless counting, or with words, or with a picture of a wave, or with the sensations, or with beginning, middle, end, whatever it is you've been doing, tell them, and see what whether it works. Loving-kindness, you can certainly tell about loving-kindness meditation. You can use one of the tapes to remind you, and do it. If you haven't got a group near you, get a friend to join you once a week. And don't try to be a missionary. If somebody asks you quite seriously and in sincerity, you've been away for 10 days. What have you been doing? And you start explaining what you have been doing. And you can feel quite clearly that this person really wants to know because this person really would like also some way of gaining a bit of peace and happiness, continue speaking about it. But if you can see that the person, after you've been saying, well, I've been watching my breath and I've been watching the sensations and then I had a very pleasant feeling and uh, I felt like I was floating and then the eyes are going, hmm? Like that, stop. Stop right then and there. You're not trying to convince anybody. You're only trying to share, and only with those who want that you share with them. Trying to convince others is uh, not a useful thing to do. The Buddha was adamant about not being a missionary although that word is sometimes used in the context of Buddhist work, it is not within the realm of the tradition at all. Those people who want to hear, they come. If they want to, if they come, obviously they want to hear. If they don't come, they don't want to hear. So it's not a soapbox affair. It's only answering questions. And this is what the Buddha did answering questions. And he often, of course, encountered skeptics. ...which we can project. And the more of that feeling we can project, the less we're ego-centered. So they all work together for us. Now you also asked, or somebody asked, about books. Books are helpful because they may contain something new, something not known before. But if we read books which are about the teaching, they shouldn't be read in the same way that we might read a novel. We should read maybe half a chapter and then see whether we can remember what's in there and actually practice it. And only after we have remembered what's in there and have tried to practice it should we go on to the next half of the chapter. Reading through the book to its end very often has a result that the mind thinks Okay, I know all that. What else is there? 
that's a very um, dangerous way of thinking and very often done by people who are intelligent because we can read quickly and then we know it all not with a book which can change our life the only problem with books is that you can't ask it any question it's there and also another problem with books is that English being at this point in time the most widely spoken and read language there is a surfeit of books on on Buddhism in English and nobody who is not familiar with the subject knows which ones are good and which ones aren't so I have brought with me here and I'll leave that on the table in the library you can have a look at it afterwards a catalogue from the BPS which is the Buddhist Publication Society of Kandy, Sri Lanka and there in it you will find inexpensive in a, a, num- a great number of books on Buddhism and amongst them dozens of translations of the Buddha's words and most of them have been translated by either Venerable Nanaponika or Bhikkhu Bodhi also Morris Walsh who is a great scholar here in England John Ireland also but Bhikkhu Bodhi and Venerable Nanaponika and Venerable Nanachiloka <coughs> two German monks Nanachiloka is dead Nanaponika is 90 still alive who are the greatest Pali scholars of the West and have translated innumerable discourses of the Buddha and given their own commentary and each one of those discourses is a small booklet about this size so if you get one it's not difficult to read and remember and having the commentary of the great scholar monks is extremely helpful now in it you will find innumerable titles so what I suggest is if you are interested I'll leave that on the table in the library you take down the address take down the way to write to them which is on the second page and if you want ask them to send you this catalogue I don't have enough for everybody I only have a few of these and if you do send them some international reply coupons so that they can send it by airmail to you and then having the catalog for yourself you can look at it the books are inexpensive and also the others which are not translations are reliable all of them are reliable because Venomanana Ponica was the president and editor of this BPS for about 30 years and now it's Bhikkhu Bodhi who is American and also a great scholar in Pali and meticulous both of them are meticulous I know them quite well for many many years and I know how meticulous they are they 
look again and again to make the translation correct and to give the exact commentary to it. It is um, it's a scholastic endeavor which has been done there, which it has no equal anywhere in the world. It's um, this little catalog here contains something like something like 600 titles so you've got a lot to choose from may not always be easy to find the one that really interests you but I would say that most of them would be alright to get some might be a little boring but uh, most of them would be fine and you couldn't get anything better if you want to know what the Buddha really said this is the tradition, the Theravadan tradition, which bases itself upon the words of the Buddha, as we have them, as much as we have them. And the uh, translations are accurate and also done in modern language. So we do not deal with the archaic English that we find in many of the translations in the Polytext Society. The Polytext Society is here in England, and the books are available, but they're far more costly than these. These are quite cheap. The polytext books are very costly. You ought to look better. A better paper and better bindings and all the rest of it. So I will leave that on the table in the library for you to look at. And they, um, they can be helpful, these books. But don't read them like a novel. If you continue your meditation and you don't find and you have any kind of question and you don't find anybody in your immediate environment whom you can ask, you can write to me. I answer every letter. I've never yet not answered a letter. It sometimes takes a little while because I don't I'm not present at that time. I'm have taken a a journey somewhere, but I answer every letter. So if you find somebody in your immediate environment whom you can ask, that's of course better. Because at that time, your question is fresh in the mind and you have an immediate discourse with the person, a dialogue. But if you can't, and not everybody is always fortunate enough to find a teacher whom they can ask or a noble friend, I have stickers here with my address and I'll leave those with the catalog also and if you like you can take one and uh, keep it or as a souvenir if you like <laughs> yes yes but I don't have my number on that little sticker <laughs> yes um, certainly uh, well for you it's not, uh, no, not so difficult you live in Germany and um, my address, my best address is always in Germany. And if I'm not there, my uh, helper and secretary uh, looks after everything that I get it, so it's never lost. So um, certainly you can also telephone if it's urgent. <laughs> so otherwise, writing is also useful. Now.
last questions. This is your last chance to ask. That's good enough if it's if you say negative. Um, you don't need to say anything. You can look at it, drop it, and go on. That dropping is the purification aspect. But if you say negative, that is also helpful because you get a, become aware more of what's going on. Hmm? Yeah, all of them. But um, you could say positive if the if 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 you like, um, you would drop it at that time because that's the only way that you can keep going. The positivity of the emotion is one that wouldn't um, uh, be lost because of that. Anything else? Well, it's very helpful to do one of the sweep um, techniques at least once a day or once every two days because it's like taking a mental shower. And you can do it in half an hour, either the part by part or the full sweep. For the mental shower, for the purification, the part by part is better. But you can also combine, and many people do, the part by part which is very meticulous little bits and pieces with the full sweep so that the part by part does not become too tedious. And the combination of the two is a very good purification method. So I would suggest that one does that at least once every two days. And half an hour is plenty to use for that. And other than that, always start uh, every meditation with uh, some appreciation of your own efforts and the appreciation of the efforts of the people you live with or are around you so that you have, a, even in the morning, very important, especially if you go to work, it's very important to start one's day with a feeling of goodness and kindness and uh, appreciation and gratitude any one of these, um, or all of them, the gratitude that one has the um, opportunity to live a decent life and to have the spiritual path, and that's for the gratitude and the appreciation of one's own efforts and others' efforts. So one can use a few moments of that at the beginning of every meditation, five minutes or something like that. and having, still having time then in the morning, if it's, if one can sit for an hour, can go to the breath and become aware of the breath if you like, or if through the sleeping it is uh, already possible 
to come to the pleasant sensation then to practice that to get to the pleasant sensation stay with it and go to the next uh, one which is the joy if that has already happened here in the um, in the course it's not likely although that too is possible that not having done it in the course that one can do it at home usually one can take with one what one has done and has a dickens of a time to remain with it but um, anything is possible I mean generalities are always generalities and not always true so uh, I would suggest that one starts every meditation session with either gratitude or appreciation or a feeling of warmth and contentment towards oneself and the immediate people one deals with has once a day or once every two days of sleep and if the sleep does bring about the pleasant sensation then use that afterwards do the sleep first as a mental shower and then go to the pleasant sensation if it comes easier through the breath or if the breath is the better concentration then use the breath afterwards there's all sorts of possibilities we can also use sometimes at some time it's important to look at impermanence not to forget but that one can do even in daily life if you do look at impermanence while working in an office it should make life much easier <laughs> yes Which one? Well, the, the fact that we are looking inwards with meditation, we are going into ourselves. Mm-hmm. I feel it could be counteracted by further kindness and compassion. But the feeling of actually being in this world, <coughs> I, I feel quite important too. Like if you're on a countryside, you know, nature is very beautiful, you can be part of the universe as well. Well, yes, we have talked about that. You can, being part of the universe as a meditation practice, you do that through the elements. And then it's not just a thought process, but it's a feeling. You can only be part of the universe if you feel it. If you think it, it doesn't, it, it's not good enough. And you, you do that as a meditation method through the elements if necessary and being part of the universe does not necessarily mean that the beauty around us is not impermanent and if we think it's all wonderful and beautiful we will have no incentive to transcend you have to see the reality of it that it's all arising and ceasing that it is being born and dying and as we see nature around us we can also see in nature that every bird, everything eats the smaller one so we must look at the reality of it and as we see the reality we will see both sides always and we, that we are part of that because we also attack the weaker one depressing only if you allow yourself to be depressed <laughs> it's real not depressing you see I'm actually, I'm, I'm 
In in German we call that peace, joy, and pancakes. Uh, peace, joy, and pancakes doesn't work. It never has worked for anyone. Only if you allow yourself. If you allow yourself to be shut in, you will be. If you allow that. The, uh, the result of meditation is not that you become closed in into yourself. That is usually the result of not being outgoing, helpful, loving, and caring. It's not a result of meditation. People are closed in without ever having meditated in their lives. In fact, they are so closed in that they can't meditate. But once one has an ability to have joy or peace without outer conditions, one has concentration which helps mindfulness, one recognizes oneself and has total compassion for one's own dukkha and everybody else's dukkha. We have discussed all that, haven't we? Why has it changed all of a sudden? <laughs> well, then you will have to uh, use more time on loving-kindness meditation. The, uh, the change is a turning back. The, the um, opening is the going out. But when the rejection and resistance comes, it goes, look. But not outer conditions, inner conditions do that. Always remember it's within and not without that it happens. When there is any kind of a negative reaction, it's mine. It's not somebody else's fault. It's the jack-in-the-box effect. Remember the jack-in-the-box effect. You can't remember anything more important. Yes. I'm not sure that I know what heart energy means. Ah, the open. Mm. A feeling of love and warmth. Yes. Uh, well, as you, as you do the sweeping and you come to that feeling, you stay with it and bathe in it. You can be completely drenched in it. And um, as you stay with it for some time, it then will develop into contentment and peacefulness. That's the next step. As you have stayed with it for some time, you have no wishes, and that means contentment. And as you go to the contentment, peacefulness arises. At the end, that too is impermanent. How did I do it? Recap, and you can always do it. It becomes your pathway of meditation so that you can always do it. As you recap every step on the way. Anything else? Yes. Who's first combining the 
Well, you, when you do the uh, part by part, you do a very small bit and go from one to the next. You can slide more. You can take larger areas. As you become more skilled, it's easy to take larger areas and slide instead of going from one part to the next. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, that was only, I was only doing that uh, when we went through it in order to give a, an entry into being aware of large area all at once, which is a, in the first jhana. So that was only an entry. That wasn't, that's not necessarily the way to do it. That you only keep it if that sensation has arisen. Anything else? All questions answered. Wonderful. We'll do our last loving kindness meditation together and then we'll share merits at the end. Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Look into your heart and see whether there's any negative emotion in it, such as fear or worry, anger, dislike, rejection or resistance, envy, pride. confusion fear, anxiety. If you find any of that or any other that is disturbing, let it float away like a black cloud in the sky being dispersed by the wind. All these emotions are only black clouds. Let them float away.
Now fill your heart, which is open and spacious, quite empty and pure, with love and compassion, the warmth of love, the care and concern of compassion. And feel these emotions within you and surrounding you, giving a sense of well-being, of contentment, of safety. Now let the warmth of your heart, full of love and compassion, reach out to the person nearest you in this hall. Fill him or her with it. Surround him or her with it. So that you have the heart connection. And now, let your heart reach out to everyone here, pouring love and compassion into everyone's heart, surrounding everybody with it, being truly connected. And now let love and compassion reach out to your parents, whether they're still alive or not, giving them your heart.
think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you, those you may be living with. And let the love and compassion from your heart pour out to them, filling them and surrounding them with them, without expecting anything in return. Just giving. Think of your friends, whom you might soon see. Let your heart speak to them. Fill them with the depths of your friendship, the care of compassion, and the warmth of your love. Think of your neighbors at home, the people that you might work with, acquaintances, those you meet here and there, and make the heart connection with all of them, loving and caring. Pouring your heart, full of love, into their heart. If there's anyone in your life with whom you have difficulties, embrace that person too. Do not allow your heart to have any blockages. Pour the love and compassion from your heart out to that person too. 
feel the heart quality in you. The lovingness, the compassion, the openness. And reach out. Loving nature around you. All the creatures that can be found. And people. first around here and then further afield as far as you can think of them touch all of them with your love and your compassion making the oneness come true in your own heart put your attention back on yourself and feel that purity of heart that expansiveness that lovingness within you so that there's no separation from others Feel it as well-being, as joy and contentment, as heart connection to all that surrounds you. We share the merits of this meditation retreat with all our teachers, with our parents, our loved ones, our friends, and our enemies. We share the merits that we have gained in this meditation retreat with the people who have been instrumental in establishing this place so that we could be here. We share with the managers who have looked after us splendidly. We share the merits with all the devas who are present. We share the merits with any anyone who can have benefit from that. We share the merits with each other 
and sharing these merits, we feel again our totality. All of us together. May beings everywhere have benefited from these efforts. May beings everywhere be happy. May all of you be happy. I now officially end this meditation retreat. Noble silence is lifted. And may this retreat have excellent benefits for all of you. Listening to the Dhamma and teaching the Dhamma are two ways of many ways of making good karma. So I like to thank you very much for having come here and giving me the opportunity of making good karma. Thank you. I also like to thank you for that very lovely card with some of your very apt uh, quotations of what you have either heard here or found in your own heart. Thank you, especially for the very nice quotations in there, which helped me to see that some of the words have actually found willing ears.